the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. She told me at that moment when she saw this woman and the gun and everything and these other girls, she just knew in her heart that he was telling her the truth and that this woman would pull the trigger if she didn't do, you know, whatever they said. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen, and he is mouthing my intro. <laughs> I say it in my sleep. He's like, no, 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 no. Billy's going super crazy from not leaving the house. He hasn't talked to anyone, so he's just mouthing what he thinks you're going to say. Yes. Yes, exactly. How are we feeling today, guys? Feeling good. Feeling all right. On the mend. On the mend, on the mend. Um, this is part one of a two-parter. So if you like to binge everything at once, you can wait until next week. But just wanted to let everybody know. So you aren't expecting a full story arc by yeah, the stick, end. Stick stick with it episode. though. The story is this is one of our our best stories I think we've ever done. So it's stick with crazy. it and then just, you know, anticipation. Leave it for the it week is- and then you'll be back on it. Yeah. It's not, there's nothing wrong Delayed gratification is the key to happiness. It absolutely is. is it? All the people who have studied happiness, it's like wait for stuff. Because yeah. mm-hmm. if the waiting period is the excitement. Because once you have it, it's never really what you imagined. That's true. so true. I mean, when mm-hmm. you think about going on a trip or something, like it's so exciting just like thinking about what you're going to do, what you're going to wear. Mm-hmm. Nothing's more exciting than the moment you pull the trigger and book because the schlep, yeah. like once you execute, like all these other variables come into play, <laughs> like packing. And yeah. Schlepping. It's yeah. just like Ubering. the fantasy. It's always better than the reality. I like That's that. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So right. take so, that in yes. mind when you're listening to this episode and when you wish, you know, you could have had a conclusion at the end. It's That's coming right. next week. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to talk about our Patreon really quick. Uh, we have an amazing episode, our second judge me ever. Um, we're judging Dahlia DiPolito and it is a doozy and I enjoyed it making it a lot. So yeah. Good. I'm excited about it. I'm excited to hear what everybody thinks. Yes. Yeah. So go on to our Patreon, give it a listen, let us know what you think. I think you're going to love it. I think you're going to love it too. All right, Billy, what day is it today? Today is May 18th and it's I Love Reese's Day. Oh. Yes. I wonder what made them decide to do I Love Reese's Day rather than just Reese's Day. I don't know, but I don't care because it is the greatest candy bar of all time. It's not a bar. And it's a candy oh, cup. Oh, I would call it a I would, it's I would a cup call it or a, pieces. Yeah. It's a morsel a or a flying saucer. Okay. Yeah. Now, here's – so you are too young to remember this, but the original commercials for Reese's Peanut Butter Cup was somebody would be on roller skates carrying a chocolate bar, and someone would be on roller skates with a peanut bu- a jar of peanut butter, and they would crash into each other, and oh. then it was, your chocolate got in my peanut butter, your peanut butter got in my chocolate, and then boom, magic. Reese's. I think I do actually remember these commercials. That's a fr- that's great creative work. It simplifies uh-huh. the concept too much. There's something magical about a peanut butter cup, and I don't think that concept does it justice. You know what? I had a peanut butter cup about an hour ago. Oh my god, was it, it so was good? A, it was a Trader Joe's one, which are still pretty fantastic. Very good. But it's dark chocolate, those ones. That's dark chocolate. I know, yeah. but there's nothing like a Reese's. Like you just know when you're having a Reese's. Do you guys remember Thanksgiving last year? They were making like the pie size Reese's cups, yes. and they were like yes. a hot commodity selling on yeah, eBay. Yeah, no, they sold out really quick. 
I mean, who wouldn't want one, you know? Yeah. So good. During the pandemic, we were all going after anything novel we could get. Mm -hmm. We needed like Mm -hmm. every novelty, every like indulgence because life was just sadsies. Yeah. Now I'm just throwing it all in the trash at this point. That's right. I don't need this anymore. No room. Mm -mm. All right. Well, I think that that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So all of us listening to true crime, we know about sex traffickers, we know about cult leaders, and we know the kind of scare tactics they use to control their victims. They do things to make people do whatever they want, whenever they want, and they'll do anything to keep their victims under their thumbs. But what happens when the victim fights back? When they threaten to destroy everything this abuser, this cult leader, this power-hungry maniac worked for? How far will the abuser go to maintain their control? These are all questions we'll be exploring in today's episode. The first, as Jack said, of our two-part series. We begin today's case on September 7th of 1976. The top song on the radio was You Should Be Dancing by the Bee Gees. Other top hits were Play That Funky Music by Wild Cherry and Don't Go Breaking My Heart by Elton John and Kiki D. September was a really slow time for theaters in 1976. Mel Brooks's silent movie was the number one movie in theaters that weekend, even though it had been playing since June. And the setting for today's case is multiple cities, rural cities in Iowa. Located smack dab in the middle of the Corn Belt, Iowa produces more corn than any other state, over 12 million acres of crops, and they're also the leading producers of soybeans and hogs. But the primary focal point for today's case is Waverly, Iowa, which had a population of around 8,000 people in 1976, and the town is so small that it takes up less than 12 square miles. And today they only have 16 officers on the police force. Yes, and our first degree for today's case is named Terry. And she grew up in the 1970s, a time where people did a lot of things we now consider completely unfathomable. You know, things like leaving their doors unlocked and letting their kids play outside unsupervised deep into the dark evening hours. They hitchhiked and they climbed into cars of strangers for a quick ride without thinking twice about it. It was also a time where women were rarely given the benefit of the doubt. It was incredibly difficult to press charges against someone for something like sexual assault. And come on, who are we kidding? It's difficult today. It's very difficult today. So imagine decades ago, it was even worse. So on top of being afraid officers wouldn't believe them or that they'd take the offender aside, women had to basically prove they'd been assaulted, much like today. Many police officers at that time based a woman's credibility on things like how long it took her to report the crime, her resistance to the attack, and if her story could be corroborated. Again, much like today. But it was even worse back then. So imagine the world Terry grew up in. So Terry grew up on a farm in Knoxville, Iowa, and that was a rural town of less than 8,000 people. And Knoxville, especially back then, is the type of town where everybody knows everybody. And that's exactly how Terry came to know Marie Lisa Peak. And we are looking at a picture of Lisa right now. She has amazing blonde hair with this kind of like side swept bang and these really loose, pretty curls. 
really, really big eyes, a little smile on her face. Lex, what else do you see? Little smile, and I just like her disposition. She looks kind of whimsical and determined. I don't know how to explain yeah. it, but I'm I like, like I like her chill. energy. Totally. Yeah. We're from Knoxville. I was obviously from outside of town, and her family was well-known there in the community because of her father. Her father was a veterinarian and had been the, the veterinarian that took care of all our needs on the farm when I was growing up. So my dad knew her dad very well. And I knew her, you know, in passing in high school because she was younger than than I was. She was always very outgoing and interested in journalism. That was her passion. So Lisa Peake was the oldest of five children. She was born on December 10th, 1956 to parents Frank and Mary. By the time she was in high school, Lisa had already developed a passion for journalism. As she neared graduation, she definitely wanted to go to college. In the fall of 1975, Lisa started working at the Clarksville Star Paper to gain experience. And she enrolled at Wartburg, the same college as our first degree. Terry was a student there. It was a a really small private college in basically rural Iowa where you don't expect anything ever to happen. So not a big university. This is comfort, you know. It's a it's a great private little college. And Terry told us that the town of Waverly, which is around 130 miles from Knoxville, was basically an even split of locals and college students. And this often left students feeling sort of isolated. So having someone from her hometown with her in this rural, isolated community kind of acted as a comfort to Terry. So we were the only two from my hometown there. So that just, you know, kind of drew us together. So when we went to Warburg and she came there, I just kind of, you know, spoke to her and told her if she needed anything, you know, that kind of thing that I was was there. And it was great to have somebody else from my hometown there. The two young friends went about their lives and connected when they needed to. Terry and Lisa formed their own social circles, but Terry is interested in being closer with Lisa. So she asked her about getting together one weekend to hang out. I reached out to her once to ask, you know, about getting together, going out on a weekend, and she didn't seem interested. Lisa also told Terry that she had plans to go out of town over the weekend in question. And I just thought, well, you know, she's a year younger. She's going to be here years to come. She's met people and she's not interested in hanging out with me or my friends, you know, because she has other interests. And if she's going away for the weekend, this sounds like a great weekend. You know, I thought, okay, she's having fun. Despite forming separate social circles, Terry and Lisa did get close. Their friendship was based on the hours they'd spend together driving to and from school to their hometown of Knoxville. It was a two and a half hour drive, so they really got to know each other and shared some intimate information about their lives. I think the thing that really made me feel closer to her was I used to give her rides home. It wasn't a big deal for people to hitchhike or, you know, post a a note on a bulletin board at their college saying, hey, I need to ride to this town this weekend. Anybody going? And you just, you know, you, you did. But being that I was from Knoxville and she knew me, she reached out to me and I would give her rides home for the weekend and back because I had a car and she did not. And on one particular drive home, Terry had some car trouble which forced them to stop and deal with that. And as they did so, Lisa had a very perplexing response to what happened next. My car broke down in a town about halfway between Waverly and Knoxville. And I had to take it to the shop to get it fixed before we could go home. And she was a total basket case. 
because we had to go to this auto shop and wait for the car. And, of course, there were guys around. And I didn't really know what was wrong, but I knew she was very, very upset by that. Confused, Terry tried to console Lisa and asked her what was wrong. She stayed with me and was just shaking and and very upset. And when we got my car fixed and then continued on home, she told me that she wanted to tell me all the details of what had happened to her. It was then that Lisa dropped a bomb on Terry. Lisa told her that in the fall of 1975, she'd essentially been sex trafficked by a man named John Carmody. And this guy had groomed her, lured her, and trapped her within a terrifying situation. Terry was shocked. She had never heard of anything like this in her life. Remember, this is the 1970s, and the term sex trafficked hadn't even been invented yet. Terry, wanting to be respectful, said that Lisa didn't have to feel obligated to share the details if she didn't feel comfortable doing so. She said, no, I want you to know, and I want you to hear it from me. So she told me how she got involved in going there. So according to Lisa, it started with those weekend trips out of town, like the ones Lisa referenced when Terry asked her to hang out when they were at school. She had some friends that she had met at Wartburg, and they would go away for the weekends, supposedly to party in Mason City. Located near the Minnesota border, Mason City, Iowa is much bigger than Waverly. In 76, there were around 30,000 people living there. And since it was only an hour drive between the two cities, Wartburg college students often went to Mason City for weekend activities. Okay, so back to what Lisa told Terry that day. At some point, one of those girls asked her to come along for the weekend, to party. Supposedly, they were going and they would shop and they would drink because at that age, we, at that time, we could drink at 18. <laughs> that didn't surprise me because, like I said, she was outgoing. She loved to just go do things for the moment even. And so she went. And she told me when she got there that they went to this apartment and there were other girls there. And then this man, John Carmody, came out as well and introduced himself and they all said hello. And then he told her that she was there for a purpose and that whatever he told her to do, she would do. Okay, who the hell is John Carmody and who the hell does he think he is? So what happened after this guy said this to Lisa? And knowing her personality, especially, uh, she was like, you know, no. (laughs) And what are you talking about? And she told me that he did have two women that were kind of his, I don't know what you call them, his right hand, (laughs) that monitored and helped enforce what he wanted with the other girls. And he told one of them to go get a gun, which she did. Okay, so now this guy is telling one of his subordinates, or possibly another victim, to go get a gun to threaten Lisa to get her to cooperate. So this is some serious shit, and this is terrifying. He showed Lisa that it was loaded. He told this woman to take it over, put it up to Lisa's head, and he told Lisa, if I tell her to pull the trigger, she will. And so you will do whatever we say this weekend or that's what will happen to you. She told me at that moment when she saw this woman and the gun and everything and these other girls, she just knew in her heart that he was telling her the truth and that this woman would pull the trigger and kill her if she didn't do, you know, whatever they said. 
Terry was blown away by Lisa's story. And she remembered how rattled Lisa had been as she recounted it. Terry even recalls being in the car with Lisa on another occasion and witnessed how some of the trauma Lisa experienced manifested. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. As Terry and Lisa drove back to Knoxville from college, Lisa continued to tell Terry about what happened to her at the hands of a sexual predator named John Carmody, who had essentially forced her into sex trafficking. And Lisa didn't go into extreme detail about what Carmody did to her next. All she said was that at the threat of physical violence, this guy made her do a lot of different sexual things with various individuals, during which he took photos and recordings, and none of these things she was willing to do. They were instructed when they went back to college after that, that they were to tell everybody, you know, what these other girls had told her, that they're going, they're having a good time, they go shopping, they party, you know, this was all wonderful. And then he would have them recruit other girls, which is how she got involved. If the victims didn't want to recruit other women like Lisa refused to, Carmody offered them an alternative. They were given options to either do other, you know, sexual acts with the pictures or or recruit and bring another girl. So he would give them options about, you know, what they could do to that he would accept. Lisa refused to recruit any other women. So she was assaulted in numerous ways. Needless to say, Terry was blown away by not only what her friend had been through, but how strong she'd been and continued to be 
after being subjected to such trauma. I was so shocked, I guess, when she told me the whole story on that car ride and so proud of her for doing what she did. Because after all she'd been, I'm going to cry. Terry realized something major after her conversation with Lisa. She could have easily been recruited into the sex trafficking ring run by Carmody. Because remember when Lisa had acted uninterested when Terry asked her to hang out? Had she been trying to push Terry away to keep her safe, to keep her out of, of this whole mess? That's exactly what Terry believes. She could have easily said, oh, come along, you know, yeah, come along, come along some weekend. I, I mean, I'm sure I would have said yes. You know? And so it, it was a long time before it really dawned on me when I spoke with her and tried to, you know, say, let's do something on the weekend. Uh, and she said no, basically, that I thought maybe that was why. So who exactly is John Carmody? How did he start recruiting women? Why did he start recruiting women? And what exactly did he do to them? To answer all these questions and more, you know the drill. We got to go back. John Joseph Carmody Jr. was given up for adoption after being born out of wedlock on March 22, 1939. He was adopted by Helen and John Carmody, restaurant owners from Decatur, Illinois. Carmody left high school in 1954 to pursue a career in the Army. And at some point, Carmody was caught committing some sort of sexual assault. This was a long, long time ago, so obviously the details are going to be limited, especially because we know how secretive military is about such things. It's unclear what exactly happened. What we do know is that the military offered him mental health support after his sexual aberrations were noted. Gross. Side note, hopefully they offered mental health support to the victim as well, and not just taking pity on the sexual predator, but we know what probably happened. What a time to be a woman. So anyways, Carmody declined the mental health resources that were being offered and just asked for a discharge from the army instead, like a true healthy-brained individual. And his discharge request was granted, and Carmody went on to marry Susan, his first of three wives, in 1961. Not long after their wedding, Carmody, quote-unquote, got in trouble with an underage girl, aka probably raped her. Yes. And Susan isn't exactly sure what happened, but she knew at the time that the mother of the girl ultimately didn't press charges, which, again, what a great time to be a woman. The couple then moved to a different Illinois town, and by this point, the couple had welcomed their son into their family. What a great, lucky kid. Carmody started working in a string of jobs, including working in collections and used car sales. Four years into their marriage, Susan divorced Carmody, citing, quote, extreme and repeated cruelty. He moved on quickly and remarried twice, both marriages ending less than a year after the wedding. Both women cited extreme cruelty as the reason for the downfall of their marriages. Right. And following the dissolving of these marriages, Carmody did nothing to clean up his act, which was made evident by the fact that by 1971, the local police actually had Carmody under surveillance after he asked a 13-year-old girl to, quote, give him baths. He was arrested and charged with delinquency of a minor, but the charge was dropped after the witness didn't show up to testify at trial. All this very upsetting stuff. You have to have compassion for this 13-year-old, though, so it's terrifying to testify about abuse. And at that time, people saw victims as, like, damaged goods. It's really screwed up, but at the time, even families of victims encouraged them to sweep everything under the rug and bury it, pretend it didn't happen, so that they wouldn't have to deal with any social consequences that went along with coming forward with something like this. Again, not that different from today. 
After these charges were dropped, Carmody moved to Iowa. In that same year, 1971, he was charged with malicious extortion for a case that was eerily similar to what he did to Lisa and to the other women. He was sentenced to a five-year suspended sentence with two years of probation. He moved to Mason City and continued to work as a used car salesman. In July of 1975, Carmody started recruiting women for what he referred to as the family, Ugh. which is incredibly original. Because you're like, oh, I'm the I'm the father of this family. It's like, yeah. it's so obvious, but it's also just so cliche. Like, come up with something new. It's yeah. so cliche. So stupid. Stupid. If yeah. I was a cult leader, I'd come up with some interesting, unique shit. I'd be like, welcome to the ant farm. <laughs> you know, like come up with something else or like, I don't know, like just like give it like a spice or something. Something yeah. so lame. I went digging around for a picture of this guy. This is the best one that I could, I could find. I know it's hard to look at. Ladies, can you describe what this guy looks like? He looks, um, this picture is very hard. It's black and white and it's really, really low quality. So um, he looks very lanky. He has like sort of a longish haircut. Puffy. puffy. He looks looks like a cross between Mr. Rogers and a cult leader. Mm -hmm. Like he looks (laughs) sort of clean cut. Yeah, he's wearing like a he's wearing like a button up shirt tucked into his jeans. Like he's actually like quite clean cut. He looks like he is in handcuffs, um, sort of put together. Uh, I can't really honestly you can't see what his face looks like, but yeah, looks like it Mr. Looks like Rogers. Also, to he's me. got one of those nose that looks like it's been punched a few times and it's a little smushed into. I bet I'm he sure. has been. Yeah, fucking has. Okay, so this family Carmody was trying to build. His first known victims were a mother and daughter. Gross. It's unclear exactly how this situation came about. But Carmody had been dating a young woman while also sleeping with her mother. One night, he invited them both over to his apartment and got them drunk. Then he threatened them physically until they agreed to pose for explicit photos. Carmody told the women that he would release the photos if they didn't recruit two more women to be part of the family. And the women, terrified of the repercussions, did as they were told. Right. And by the time everything was said and done, Carmody had expanded this family to around 15 women. The older woman, whose daughter Carmody had been dating, was referred to as mom. Again, so original. All the other women were between the ages of 19 and 26. Most of them were completely inexperienced with men. All were being exploited and victimized by by Carmody. And Carmody followed a similar pattern with each recruit. He would have members of the family invite a woman over to his place, which was outfitted to make him look really rich. There was velvet furniture, big mirrors. Like, think of a very, like, 70s Playboy-style place. Probably so fucking cheesy. Then he would wine and dine the woman, and he would start talking about his mafia connections. He claimed to be a mafia chieftain who co-wrote The Godfather book. And also bragged that the second Godfather movie was based on his grandfather. And to be clear, all this mafia talk was total fucking bullshit. But again, this is in the 70s. It's a time before the internet. And a quick Google search just couldn't be done. So I guess you just believe somebody. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the dinner, Carmody would then tell the woman that she knew too much. And then she now had to join the family. This is so fucking stupid. It's stupid, but like it was a naive, innocent time. Like it's when you like when you watch documentaries like uh, Abducted in Plain Sight, right? And you yeah. think about how naive and trusting and believing people were. It's like, oh my gosh, he has guns and he's he knows all this stuff about the Godfather. I mean, it probably, especially when you think about cult leaders, are so charismatic. They can sell yeah. 
anyone anything. I bet you he was very convincing. Yeah. So as we heard with Lisa, it wasn't possible for the woman to just say, fuck off and walk away. Carmody threatened the women. He literally put guns to their heads. He told them they would be raped, pumped full of drugs, and have acid thrown at them if they didn't do what he said. Carmody told the women that police had been paid to ignore any reports they made. It didn't matter where they went or who they talked to. He had eyes and ears everywhere. And to make the women believe him, Carmody would do things like show them a funeral notice about a young woman who had died from a blood clot in her pancreas. And he would tell them that she was actually poisoned by him. In addition to threats, Carmody blackmailed the women in numerous ways. He made them take compromising photos, as we said. And this was a show of their good faith. An investigator later described the photos as worse than penthouse. And you know, back in the 70s, that's we've we're all desensitized now with all the porn and things we've seen on the yeah. internet, and Lord knows what else on any dark web that may exist. But uh, worse than penthouse back then was basically like you're a cretin. Mm-hmm. One woman was forced to pay him $200 and another $500 to keep these photos private. And he also got them to disclose personal information so we could create dossiers for each woman, which included embarrassing personal information, bank account information, and names and addresses of relatives and boyfriends, all to hang over their heads to manipulate them to do what he wanted. Sounds a lot like Nexium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had dossiers on the girls, and he had details of like all about her family, her little brothers and sisters, how they got to school, when they went to school, when they got home, her parents. And he told her if she didn't continue that he would have someone kill or kidnap some of her family members. And, of course, you know, she believed him after after what he put her through and the threatening with the guns. Carmody made sure the women were aware of how much he knew. One victim said he kept threatening to do things to my father, who lived in town, and would report on things my father was doing as if he was having him followed. The women were forced to play house. They had to do all of the cooking, all of the cleaning, shopping, etc. They also had to give Carmody money, buy him whatever he wanted, and submit to him sexually. He kept them isolated by not allowing the women to talk to each other about what was actually going on. If they left the apartment, they had to check in via phone frequently. Carmody would turn the women against anyone who tried to resist. Like when Lisa said she wasn't going to join, one of the family members put a gun to her head. As horrifying as this all is, it's just crazy that every cult leader like takes from the same playbook. Yeah. Yeah. By the beginning of December of 75, Lisa was at the point where she couldn't stay in this family any longer. She had to do something. Anything to escape the clutches of the sick and twisted John Carmody. By the fall of 1975, Lisa and the other victims had been put through the ringer. But they were all too scared to leave. They were convinced Carmody or his mafia goons would kill them. By the beginning of December 75, Lisa was at a breaking point. She couldn't stay in the family any longer. She told me that it got to the point where she just couldn't take it anymore. She was so upset all the time. It was hard for her to concentrate at school. She was worried about her family. She went out to the train tracks and stood there and and said to herself, you know, I'm either going to kill myself now or I'm going to turn this man in and deal with whatever the consequences are. And... You know, she said she just couldn't do it anymore. And she made the choice 
to turn him in. In December of 1975, the then 18-year-old Lisa told her parents everything about what had been going on. And she hadn't told a single soul until that point. She'd been too afraid. And as she told them, she was still afraid. She knew she was putting her parents in danger and herself in danger. But she was at a breaking point. She couldn't live the way she had been any longer. And Lisa also knew the ramifications and victim blaming this decision would expose her to. She knew that people would think of her differently and that her prospective journalism career could be over. But she had to save herself and these other women. And that was more important than any of that. So Lisa's parents took her to Mason City Police on December 8th to make a statement. And at first, the officers didn't believe it because they had never had any run-ins with Carmody. He didn't even have a traffic ticket. Plus, no neighbors had reported any noise or excessive traffic into his home. But then they learned the identities of two other victims and asked them to make statements. And the women agreed to talk, even though they were absolutely terrified that they'd be killed. Especially since Carmody had been telling them, if you remember, that he paid the police off so they'd never believe the victims. After the women made their statements in front of a judge, the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation obtained search warrants, which they used to raid Carmody's apartment on December 9th. During their search, investigators found over 300 compromising photos of these women, as well as the dossiers he'd collected on them. The photos were so disturbing that the chief deputy vowed to destroy them as soon as he possibly could. It's a promise he later fulfilled. Other pieces of evidence worth noting were five guns and holsters that the women were forced to buy Carmody, a vibrator they were forced to use, and two fake special agent badges in leather flip cases, like the ones from crime dramas where the police flashed their ID. Carmody was arrested without an incident and eventually charged with a total of 16 counts of rape and malicious extortion. When news of Carmody's family hit the news, there were a lot of mixed reactions around Waverly, where Terry and Lisa attended college. The case was compared in the media to that of Charles Manson and Patty Hearst crimes. Chuck Offenberger with the Des Moines Register wrote that you would think the Carmody case would be from California, not Iowa, which I think is rude. As Chuck put it, it was hard to believe that there were, quote, no California weirdos in this one. Mason City Deputy Police Chief Dwayne Jewell said, this thing has all of our investigators really shook up. We can hardly believe all that's been going on. How nice for you, male police officers, not thinking these these things happen to people. Like, I know, like, what oh is my that? God, I can't believe this is could be happening to women. The pearl clutching of these men is shocking. And again, with the California, rude. The California, yeah. California's great. That's right. <laughs> there was also quite a bit of victim blaming, which we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Like, well, why? How did she get involved in this? And why did it take this long for anyone to turn them in? And, you know, and they had no idea. I mean, listening to her and seeing her the day she told me this was, I mean, this was a person who was traumatized to be around a man in a public area. She was traumatized from this. So it's reactions like these that continue to make it harder and scarier for women to come forward. And again, there's been... In the script here, it says a lot of progress, but reading this, it sounds kind of the same. Like it truly does. Like I know it's was quote unquote worse in the seventies, but these problems still persist. A lot of women deal with the same fear and shame of social consequences when they come forward. And it was then happening and it's happening now. Now, 
Following Carmody's arrest, Lisa started receiving death threats from two family members who were completely in love with Carmody and wanted to marry him. Their behavior was in stark contrast to all the other members who were beyond grateful for Lisa who had saved their lives and their families' lives. They were now free from a sadistic man, all thanks to Lisa. Meanwhile, attorneys on both sides of Carmody's case wanted to avoid a trial. No one wanted the women to have to testify, even though some were willing to. The prosecution also had to worry about a jury and how they would look at the case. It was clear as news stories about Carmody were released that the public absolutely could not believe what they were reading. The prosecution worried that the story just might be too bizarre for jurors to believe, especially in Iowa. So they struck a deal. On January 9th, 1976, a 36-year-old John Carmody pleaded guilty to two counts each of rape and extortion. On May 18th, his sentencing hearing was held, and the prosecutor told the judge he knew rape could bring a life sentence, but that he did not consider this case, while it's bizarre, to have the devastating and brutal nature sometimes associated with bodily harm. How compassionate. Go fuck yourself. Way to show compassion for the perpetrator. Like, what the fuck? Ah, that makes me, it makes my skin crawl. Way to go. Way to go, state. Carmody traumatized nearly 15 women to the point of wanting to take their own lives. And it's hard to understand where the prosecutor was coming from in that one and encouraging a light sentence when they're the ones supposed to be holding him accountable. Carmody's attorney argued that his client had found Jesus while awaiting in trial. How original. And he wanted that to be reflected in his sentence. He wanted some light at the end of the tunnel, it says. The judge called Carmody a menace to society and then sentenced him to 40 years for each rape and five for each extortion. So this does sound like a major victory, right? Well, there was a catch. These sentences were to run concurrently and would start from the night of his arrest. So following Carmody's convictions, Lisa moved on with her life. She was probably emotionally exhausted and just wanted to start rebuilding and focusing on her her dreams and her pursuits. She was attempting to ignore the threats she received from Carmody's loyal followers as she tried to rebuild her life and heal from everything. Thankfully, she was never publicly named as a victim of Carmody's, but there were rumors around campus at school that the unnamed co-ed in the news reports about this case was her. Whenever someone asked her about it, she would verbally confirm this rumor and then ask that they just move on. Lisa was moving on with her life and they should do the same. With that being said, Lisa did tell her friends, like her first degree Terry, the full story. Lisa had plans to attend Wartburg for the 1976-77 school year, but for the summer break, she decided to live in an apartment in Des Moines. She started working at Elaine Power Figures Salon, which is kind of like a combination of Weight Watchers and a women's only gym. Lisa continued working in journalism and ultimately decided her experience was so harrowing that she wanted to write a book about it along with Des Moines Register reporter Chuck Offenberger. And this is a bold, brave, and incredible thing to do. After all, Lisa's strength and resilience on the heels of this ordeal could be inspiring to other women who'd experienced sexual exploitation and sexual assault in the 1970s. So on August 23rd, 1976, Lisa and Chuck contacted Carmody to tell them about their book and they asked if they could meet with him to share their ideas. Chuck later said that Lisa was gutsy and didn't show any fear over the idea of meeting Carmody, which is so crazy. Well, they wanted an interview. Like, they wanted to write the definitive book on the case. And I think it's like, it's so badass of her to want to do this, honestly. Because it's like like melding her passion with, like, her trauma. And it can be 
projects like this succeed. You know, those are yeah, some well, of the- she can tell the story on her terms, which is Absolutely. amazing. And she really wanted to see Carmody so she could show him that he didn't have this control over her anymore. But she would never get the chance to sit down with him. Because Carmody responded to Lisa and Chuck via a letter from his attorney. And this letter indicated that they intended to write their own book about this case. She received a letter back from his attorney saying that they were in the process of, you know, whatever, if anything was going to be done, it would be via John Carmody and that she shouldn't do this, basically. Right. The letter went on to say, quote, It is interesting to note that the little gal who blew the whistle on Mr. Carmody would now like to collaborate with the young reporter who tried to sensationalize the matter beyond propriety in order to gain front page recognition and make a little pocket money out of the deal. That certainly does add to the material. I hate the way he fucking talks. It's so condescending. The little gal. The little gal. Like, fuck you. She put you away, dude. She's not a little gal. Yeah. As the start of the fall semester of the 76 and 77 school year got closer, Lisa told her mom that she no longer felt safe in the Des Moines area. She wanted to go back to Waverly where she felt more at ease. And that's exactly what she did on September 5th when she moved into an all-girls dorm. She was so excited about going back to school that fall and having been through that and moving on and being a journalist and writing all this. And she was just, it was like she was moving on and life looked so good. And then to have that happen was even more devastating than what she'd been through, you know, for her, obviously, you know. The devastating thing that Terry is referencing is something almost too shocking and sad to believe. On September 7th, only two days after she'd moved back to Waverly, Lisa's beaten and bruised body was found just outside city limits by a farmer under a lone cottonwood tree beside a gravel road. She had been strangled and her neck was broken. The small town of Waverly was shocked over this discovery. I found out that something had happened to her when I was back at at college, had moved back that Labor Day weekend, same as a lot of, you know, students did. And I lived in a suite with three other girls. And one of the girls came in, a friend of mine came in, and I I can still see her face. She came in and I took one look at her and said, what's wrong? And she said, we think you should call your parents. And I was like, why? (laughs) She said, well, they just had reported on the news that a co-ed from Warburg College had been found, you know, dead under suspicious circumstances. And it was a, they weren't releasing names, but it was a blonde co-ed from Knoxville. <laughs> there were two of us, you know, so it was kind of like, I was worried, of course, that my parents would hear that and, you know, to call my parents and my friend went with me and I just, I broke down. I couldn't even talk to them. I couldn't even tell them what had happened. My friend had to tell them. So had Carmody followed through on his promise to kill any victim who went forward to police? Maybe his two loyal followers, the ones who wanted to marry Carmody, followed through on their threats and promises. Or was it her date? Was it a random attacker? Was it none of these people? All amazing questions, and next week we'll explore all of them and more in the conclusion to our incredible and harrowing story. And 
And a huge thank you for Terry for being our first degree guest this week. And she'll be with us next week as well. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the search bar. Follow us on TikTok. And remember to join our Patreon. We have such amazing bonus content on there that we are just so proud of making. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. (laughs) Happy peanut butter cup day. Reese's. Happy cup day. Bye. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing by Haley Gray. Sources for this episode are The Iowa Cold Cases, Waverly Community News, The Courier, New York Daily News, The Des Moines Register, Iowa City Press Citizen, Carol Daily Times Herald, Globe Gazette, New York Daily Record, and as always, our first three guest is always our largest source.